Listening to bad sermons can make you a better preacher? Learning about oral clarity by listening to your own unclear sermons. The path to a pulpit and then to a professorate and back into a pulpit. Spending enough time in the text to get to the point where you're able to say, thus saith the Lord. The benefits of manuscripting sermons and walking into the pulpit with no notes. In this episode of The Teaching Pastor, we have a conversation with Don Sanukian, Professor of Christian Ministry and Leadership at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Teaching Pastor podcast. I want to welcome you. We're coming from, these offices always scared me, Don, because they don't have any windows. There's no windows, there's no doors, but there's great work that goes on here. And I'm here with Don Sanukian here at Talbot School of Theology on the campus of Biola University. And um, we're here during, is it missions conference? That's For the undergraduates, right yeah. Yeah, I just saw a huge line of people that I was, I had to ask, what is this line for? Yeah, it might have been that for some reason they canceled the cafeteria today and they put a lawn, a lunch out on the lawn for the students. Yeah. And so they're all out there on the lawn going through a line and picking up their food and enjoying the good weather. Absolutely. Uh, the undergraduates have to go to the mission conference. Yeah. Uh, Talbot is not is not part of the missions conference. But we're in a bit of a pause for the Talbot schedule right now, or do, do our classes yeah. running? Yeah, classes are dismissed at Talbot. Yeah, right, uh, right. Yeah. Now, Don, you are... We talked about this off air before, but you are essentially the Jedi, the 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 Yoda, the uh, the Sherpa guide of of preaching of homiletics here at Talbot School of Theology. I mean, I don't know. Do you do they give a title like that? Is <laughs> is there somewhere that you go to no, earn that title? No. Do they give a lightsaber no, out or something no, like no, that? No. no. But thank you. Thank yeah. You. No. Yeah. But how long have you been teaching homiletics here at Talbot? Uh, over twenty years. Yeah. At Talbot, and then ten years. Uh, in an earlier period of time at another school, okay, another seminary. And, and what, what school was that? That was at Dallas. At Dallas. And before Dallas, I had a, a long pastorate, and between Dallas and Talbot, I had another pastorate. So I've kind of gone back and forth between pastoring and teaching, pastoring and teaching. Um, I'm probably running out of decades to keep making that switch <laughs> now, but uh, no, Talbot's been a good place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Talbot is a fantastic school. I'm a Biola alum, taking some classes here at Talbot. so. Um, a great, a great spot. Now you um, and you did your training when you're training for ministry, or at Dallas as well. Is that correct? Um, in part. Yeah, in part. I, I, I have a doctorate from Dallas in biblical theological studies, but I also have a doctorate from UCLA in communication. Okay. So somehow the two of those have combined in being a <laughs> pastor and being a professor of preaching. Right. And then you wrote some you wrote a thesis project at UCLA about about preaching and the communication aspects of, of preaching, right? At yes. the secular school. What was that like? What was that like to go into that environment and be essentially talk about how what pastors do on a Sunday morning at yeah. UCLA? It was actually quite quite enjoyable. There there were some circumstances to my getting to UCLA which when I got there, I was already highly in their favor. They basically, the school had abolished a program that I had been accepted to, which meant that the faculty was going to be dismissed. Since I had been accepted and had signed, my wife had signed teaching contracts, I basically sent registered letters to everybody from the president to the regents, and they undid the 
dismissing of the program. Okay, so they so I came in as the golden boy who had saved the faculty jobs. Oh, way to go! So they kind of looked favorably <laughs> on me, <laughs> and uh, you know, eventually they did phase out the program, but it right. took them a lot longer to do it. Right. And so they were they were very open to whatever I wanted to do. They I had a background from seminary where they knew I knew my subject. They didn't know anything about my subject. Yeah. Uh, and so I knew more about it when I before I started than they did, you know, and so they they were very open to it and uh, very appreciative of the dissertation that I wrote. Yeah, it was yeah. very nice, very easy to do. Yeah, and where as a pastor, where do you as you look back on it, where is the place where you kind of cut your teeth on teaching, preaching in the pulpit? Where was that spot? I'm not sure I understand. Are you asking me where what my church background was or yeah, where? No, just kind of. Where did you where did you first maybe find your voice? Where do you feel like you found your voice as a preacher? You know, when I'm doing the doctorate at Dallas, I'm teaching a young adult Sunday school class, which grows quite a bit, becomes a fairly large class. And basically on a Sunday morning in that young adult's class, even while I'm working on the Dallas doctorate, I think that's probably where I started finding the voice. Yeah. Uh, it became obviously that it happened more when I went to Scottsdale Bible Church as a pastor right. there. Uh, interestingly, it, as, as a teacher listening to sermons, when you prepare your own sermon once a week or however many times a week, you don't pick up the skills that are all necessary. But when you start being a teacher and you hear 15 sermons in a week, all of a sudden some consensus and commonality mm -hmm of issues become clear and that in builds into your own preaching. In other words, I learned things about oral clarity listening to a lot of unclear sermons. <laughs> and once I learned them, I not only taught to the students what to do, but I then added that to my own preaching skills. Absolutely. So that my voice increased as a preacher as a result of being a teacher okay. on that. Okay. Was there anything or any a person whether it's words from a person or just an experience early on where you thought this is it like this is the this is confirming my call to not only preach but to teach preaching as i understood my call early on it was to pastor a church i grew up in a mega church the church of the open door at that time jay vernon mcgee was the pastor in my carnality and ego i thought if i'm going to be a pastor of a big mega church i need a doctorate too so that was the motivation. Jay, Jay Vernon, he still lives on, and yeah, you sure. can hear him today. <laughs> uh, and, but in addition, I also felt like getting a doctorate will, will just help me be even better prepared as a pastor. I'll, I'll know the Bible better. Mm -hmm. And halfway through getting that doctorate, I started assisting Haddon Robinson, who was teaching at Dallas at the time. And he started using me, I was in the doctorate program, he started using me in the master's program to help him with some of his classes. And I think word filtered back to him that I could help the guys. For some reason I could listen and know how to make their sermons better. And so he had me in his office one day and he said, Dallas is gonna get larger, we're gonna need faculty, we'd like to bring you back if you would be interested. And that was the first time the thought of a career in teaching as opposed to pastoring yeah. entered my head. Yeah. My wife and I talked about it and Haddon said, if it does interest you, you need to do something beyond the Dallas doctorate. You need to get a doctorate from a university. And that's what spurred us to go to UCLA on that. 
I expected as I finished at UCLA that I would immediately go to Dallas, but Haddon instead said, you need some pastoral experience first. Yeah. And my first thought was, you're making up the rules as we go along. My, <laughs> se my second thought is, it's probably a good rule. When I went to Scottsdale Bible Church, I had the thought, okay, I'll get a couple of years here, and then I'll go teach at Dallas. After a couple of years, he invited me to come to Dallas, but at that point, God was doing things in my life at the church. Mm -hmm. And I think I was doing some things for God at the church. And I was unsure that that was a time to leave and go to Dallas. So that's a crossroads. Yeah. And so I threw it to the elders. I just said, you guys decide. You called me. You decide whether I stay. I'm under your authority. You pray, you fast, do whatever you want to do. But if you think I should go to Dallas, I will. If you think I should stay at Scottsdale, I will. And uh, they had never had anybody throw his career into their lap before like that. They came back with, we think well, you should stay. Okay. And so I stayed. And I stayed for another five years. And every year hadn't kept, you know, will you come now? No, do you come now? No. And then finally the year he left to go be president of Denver Seminary, that was when the president of the seminary called and said, we've got such a big hole here, what do you think? And I said, well, let me talk to the elders again. And this time the elders said go. Yeah. So I, that was it. But uh, pastoring, you know, I mean, I taught for 10 years in Dallas and then went back and pastored a church for another eight years uh, in a different city. Yeah. So, so your heart is as a pastor, but you are, you're a teacher as yeah, well. Yeah. The, I, at this stage of my life, I, I, I say I am wired best as a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, I think on a scale of 1 to 10 as a pastor, I give myself a 7 or 8. On a scale of 1 to 10 for a teacher, you know, I think I give myself a nine or a ten. Sure, I'm, 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 I do better in that. Okay. Even as though, even though I love the other, but yeah, this is where I'll die. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to come to those kind of moments of clarity about what, what I'm the nine or ten at, and what I'm the seven or eight at. Yeah. I think that's something that every pastor has to wrestle with, with the things that are on their plate. So yeah. it sounds like you've had some time to think about this. Yeah. As you think about your style, you've heard a lot. You've got students coming in all the time, and you've got various styles, and you've probably sat in enough pews to hear a number of styles. How would you describe your own style as it relates to kind of the broader spectrum of what uh, evangelical Christianity, what's out there? How would you describe the way you bring a message on a Sunday morning? I'm, I'm committed to four things. My first concern is, am I accurately reflecting the biblical text? Is my Am I presenting the concepts, the progression of thought of the biblical author? Uh, I've, I've got to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, okay? And that's, I can satisfy that usually in about six or seven hours of really good solid yep. study, reading good exegetical commentaries. That's my first concern. Then I, from that, I kind of have a sense of, okay, here's how this passage unfolds. Now, through this passage, God is revealing timeless theological truth, not just history. The history happened, but the reason it was recorded was because in this history there is some timeless truth that goes down. You hear Jesus doing that when he says to the Pharisees, you're asking me why I do what I do on the Sabbath. He says, have you never read? And he goes back to a, an event written a thousand years earlier in the Old Testament. Have you never read David went into the sanctuary, ate the sacred bread that only the high priest is supposed to eat. The high priest even gave it to him. If you had read that event, you would have 
understood the theological, timeless, revelatory truth that God was giving. That truth explains why I'm doing what I'm doing on the right. Sabbath. So Jesus so, is hermeneutic, and so you've got to interpret. Yes, and you interpret it in saying God is revealing a timeless, revelatory truth that spans the centuries and generations, regardless of what genre of literature right. I have, whether it's narrative or poetic right. or proverbs. Uh, it's real easy to do that in the didactic epistolary material. It's right on the surface. When you look at narratives, it's not on the surface. It's embedded in the storyteller's art that leads you to understand the, the dynamics that are spiritually occurring, not only in his day, but in your day. Mm. And you need to be able to transfer that spiritual dynamic from his day and yeah. find the equivalent spiritual dynamic right. in your day, because that's where the theology and the point of co contemporary connection yeah. hits our people. So you got those two horizons. Yes. Yeah. So, so and the third thing you're looking to do is third thing is that there are skills of oral clarity that I have finally understood after listening to a lot of unclear sermons. Uh, oral clarity is different than written clarity. Written clarity is what we are good at because we've done it all our lives. We've written blue books. We've written papers. We've written exams. We've written notes for people at our house to read. We always are writing for somebody's eye to look at it, read it, and be clear. And when you've got written material, there's a lot of built-in aids that enable somebody to be clear. The biggest one is paragraph indentations. Right. Okay. You see white space at the beginning, a line, a paragraph indentation. Your brain immediately says, I'm going to start a new thought. And your grammar teachers have taught you that the first sentence is the topic sentence, which means this is the sentence that tells me in summary fashion what this whole paragraph is about. Mm. The rest of the sentences are going to expand and develop it. And when I get to the last line and I see all that white space at the end of the last line, my brain says, you have finished that thought. Get ready for another new one. Right. Powerful organizing for the I to be clear. You go oral, you have no white space. Just you and your voice. You and your voice. Yeah. The listener doesn't see indentations. Now, orally, you have to build something into that message. You have to add some things, and we talk about this in the class, to help the leader, listener know what to do. Another built-in aid to clarity. If I'm reading it and I don't understand something, I get pulled away to look up a word. I have to go into the kitchen to answer something. I come back, it hasn't moved. Right, it's right there. It's right there. Orally, if I'm listening to your message and my kid drops something and I reach under a pew and pick it up and I try to shush them down and I get back to look at you, you're, you didn't stop and wait for me for 45 <laughs> seconds to come back to you. There should be a pause button on every <laughs> pew. Just pause and then like some electric shock gets the pastor and you stop for a second. Although how often, you know, it would just be a series of shocks the whole yeah. time. <laughs> so the second thing, that, you know, that I'm, I'm, I, I know those skills now. Yeah. I know, and there are about six of them, and mm. I discuss them at length in the textbook right, that I read. Right. Uh, so I do that. Then, I'm, then also I am highly committed to contemporary connections. Okay. And by that, I don't mean just vague, you know, you know be kind to people. No, right. I'll create a scenario. I'll create an extended picture in your world, mm -hmm. not in somebody's world that lives overseas. In your day-to-day -day world, what is a contemporary picture of where this truth intersects with your life? Yeah. So those are the things I'm after. It sounds like you've done those four things before. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because as a professor, you know, when somebody asks you a question, you're like, well, I've got an outline in my well, head about well, that sort of a thing. I mean, I, that's how we, that's, that's, that's the opening <laughs> 10 minutes when you come into my class. That's right. That's right. And kind of this, this podcast is a bit of a gateway drug. Like we, we want people, we want this to be, this is like the first free hit, you know, but you got to go to Talbot, you know, go yeah. somewhere and get trained Find some good people who are going to mentor yeah. you, get some training. So that might not always be in today, but it certainly is something that I yeah. think is very hey, important. Even less than that, as a self-centered plug, Google me on some something, Amazon, and get a copy of my textbook. Yeah, it, get, what is the name of your textbook? Invitation yeah. to Biblical Preaching. All right, and, you can, and we'll have that in the show notes and a little link to Amazon so that um, those of you out there that want to, that want to sharpen your tools, that you yeah. think like you've been doing this intuitively for a while, and maybe you listen to yourself preach, but, and this is what happened, you hear yourself, you're like, oh gosh, mm -hmm. I sound like that. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, how do I, how can I make, what kind of steps can I take to sharpen my tools and, and to get, to get, uh, to get well? What do you think is, is probably the, the best thing that a preacher can do to sharpen their tools, to get better at their craft? What do you think would be uh, just one, one thing that might really make it be a difference maker for someone? Uh, there's a good book put out by uh, Overdorf, O-V-E-R-D-O-R-F. Daniel Overdorf. Yes, and uh, it's, it's 51 steps or something like that. Okay. To, uh, I'm trying to find it on my shelf here. Here it is, A Year to Better Preaching. Okay. And he's got a lot of exercises, 52 exercises to hone your skill. It's a fairly inexpensive paperback. Uh -huh. It's put out by Craigle Publishers, and uh, it's very practical. And as a first step, it would be a great way to get started. Well, great. I would imagine we're going to have plenty of um, of links in the show notes because um, um, we academic types we love our books. <laughs> we love to find a good book and to and to pass it on. Yeah. But that's always a it's, it's a great thing to think mm -hmm. about. What is if there's only one thing that I can do? Maybe getting a book. Maybe um, uh, I just heard a past, I was just um, uh, talking with uh, David Ludwig out at, in Palm Desert, and he says before all of his sermons, he, he speaks the, the manuscript into his um, voice memo in his phone and then listens to it and then goes on a long walk to hear, well, what, what do I need to shift? What do I need to change? Yeah, How can I be more clear? Idea. Yeah, I, that's great. You know, yeah, so when you think about, you think back to those early days um, in Dallas or you think about Scottsdale Bible and, and Scottsdale Bible, um, uh, I, I, it's funny because I'm thinking they went from a Sanukian to a Delhuse eventually. <laughs> it's like do you have you have to have a really long last name to be the pastor of, of Scottsdale Bible Church. But um, when you think about that and you think about your prep, um, what has changed for you in your prep over the years? When I first went to Scottsdale, I had three preparations a week: Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night Bible study. Yeah. And I gave the most of the time to Sunday morning, a reasonable time to Sunday night, and then Wednesday night was, what class notes can I use? <laughs> <laughs> What's in the file drawer or That's on the right. computer? Right. Uh, and so it was impossible to manuscript yeah. at, when you have that many preparations. As I've moved on and, you know, the second time I went to a, a church, and then just recently I also pastored a small church here at, while I was even a professor. It was an Armenian ethnic church. Uh, I moved toward, in the Armenian Ethnic Church, I moved toward manuscripting all of my messages. 
I had reached a point where I realized there is a benefit to that, multiple benefits to manuscripting. And so that was a significant progression in my okay. uh, approach to preaching, where now I go into the pulpit. I do not take the manuscript with me. I don't take any notes with me. I go through that manuscript enough times beforehand until it's e internalized enough that I can reproduce about 70 to 80 percent okay. of it, and that's a good level. Uh, but that way I get most of the the wording that I really sweated out yeah. in the study. But manuscripting is something that uh, has significantly become different. Okay. One of the benefits, not only the, the, another benefit besides precision and and exactness on the moment of delivery is if you ever want to preach it again, you don't have to wonder what your chicken scratches. <laughs> there it is, That's man. <laughs> it's in the computer. It's in word the computer. For word. Yeah. yeah, or it's in your brain. You've, yeah. uh, you've committed. I mean, going walking into the pulpit with no notes yeah. is. Um, I mean, I think I have like a a recurring dream or nightmare about that. You show up and you're like. I'm supposed to preach this morning, or I'm supposed <laughs> to teach a class, and I don't have anything. But that's that has got. When was the first time you walked into the pulpit, no notes? I think it probably was at a men's retreat because, uh, at a men's retreat, when you've been asked eight or ten times to do a men's retreat, there are certain messages that you know fit men's retreat, and so I was going to this men's retreat with the idea of that, and I thought, I didn't bring my notes with me, and I thought. Well, I've given this message about five or six times. I wonder if I can. Let's go for it. And I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. And and it, it, without any notes, without a podium or a box in front of you, you suddenly feel like there's a freedom and there's mm. an, an engagement and a directness of connection with right. the listeners. And I thought, my goodness, the, the sense of immediacy right. has greatly increased without these notes. And so I thought, can I do it? with messages that I'm preaching for the first time right. instead of one that I've given five or six mm -hmm. times. And so I just committed to making it happen. It adds, that, that internalizing adds, well, first of all, manuscripting adds about six hours to preparation. I was gonna say, that yeah. I was gonna say what, for someone who's doing 35 a year or 40 a year, do you think that's, that's doable? If, if you only have one preparation a week, yes. You have to commit 15 to 20 hours yeah. a week. And every, contemporary speaker who has any reputation at all within our circles, they all come up with that same number. Yeah. Any pastor that says, I don't have 15 to 20 hours a week, right. my answer to you is, yes, you do. You're just choosing to use those hours on some other activity. Right. Right. And the guys that are hitting the, bell, the ball and are out there and are known on their mm -hmm. podcasts or whatever they're doing, those are the guys that say, I'm going to do 15 to 20 hours a week on this and I'm not going to have the time to do something else. Right. Instead of saying I don't right. have the time to do the sermon. Right. So or they I, or they bring team into that process where they mm -hmm. have some of the work of the sermon, whether it's on the presentation side or whether it's on the preparation side. Yeah. Someone doing some research for yeah. them or digesting some yeah. notes they might. on their behalf. But ultimately, it comes down. Somebody's got to sit down at a computer and type it out. Right. And since I it's my message, I'm going to type it out. It's going to take me six hours to type it right. out. Probably also going to take me about three hours to internalize it. Maybe two hours Saturday night, maybe yeah. another hour Saturday morning. Right. Uh, so committing to that does lengthen the work. But the benefits are an, 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 an engagement at the moment of delivery, a permanent record of the message, a sense of how long the message is. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you know, I can tell you how many pages I've got and how many long my message. Right. So I can make adjustments in that area too. Yeah. How long of a manuscript do you tend to take up? I I think I don't manuscript, but I'll I know if I've got five pages in front of me, of of kind of bullet points, I know that I'm going to be right around a half hour yeah. a little bit beyond, beyond that. What's your my, what's the number? I shoot I shoot for anything between 25 and 35, depending on the message. Okay. Minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That then that seems to be comfortable for almost any context. And how long is your manuscript essentially then? Uh, it depends on how much white space there is in the paragraphs. Mm -hmm. You know, the, it's. It also depends on what, how small a font you use and how spread out your margins right. are. So I try to get as much on a page as possible. So I use the margins way to the extreme of the printer, huh. and I use a font of 10. That way, when I'm internalizing it, I see most and of the most material of that I can Got see at a, at a glance. Well, that's, interesting. that's an interesting um, way of thinking about it and, and working with it is not having large font because you're not bringing it up with you, yeah. but you want to see the whole of it. Yeah. as much as you can. Yeah, that's great. So where where do you do your best work, Don? When you're thinking about, you've been given a passage and you're going to preach at uh, the Armenian uh, ethnic church that you're at, or you're thinking you're being, um, well, if you're a guest speaker, you're probably bring you might be bringing something you've already done, but if you're going from scratch, how are you approaching that text? Where do you do your best work? I don't know what you mean by where. What do you mean? Well, in the office, do you are, are oh, coffee home. shop home? Uh, do you have yeah. a home office? Yeah. Do you we uh, do you go to common grounds down yeah, here? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in every home since we got married uh, and started owning a home, yeah. we've been able to have a bedroom that is designated as Dad's study, mm -hmm. and so I have a desk and computers and libraries. And uh, when I was at Scottsdale, I. I never showed up at the office till after lunch. Okay. Uh, uh, at the Armenian church, uh, I would use days when I didn't have to be on campus early and do it in the morning. And then maybe there was a day I didn't need to be on campus at all. Uh, home is where I do the work. Okay. Home is where I do That's the work. That's where you feel like you're getting your best, mm -hmm. your, your, your freshest mind. In the morning is the time that yes. you're generally yeah. thinking. I, I am a good morning person. I can get up. Before the sun up, I can take a cup of coffee, yeah. and before the rest of the family is astir, yeah. uh, I can I can get working. And you're a coffee guy, not, yeah. no tea, nah, no other. I'll drink tea, but you'll you know I'll I'll brew about two or three cups in the morning, and that'll yeah. that'll carry me through <laughs> until the doldrums of the afternoon. Has that grown over <laughs> the years, or is it have the That's caffeine has been? Uh, it's pretty stable. It's pretty stable. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> that, that seems to be the size of the coffee pot, right? I, I, I cook it and drain it, and that's right. it. Now, there's a there's a lot of movement today in contemporary preaching to moving away from kind of the one one voice in the pulpit that that let's have multiple voices in in a pulpit over the course of the year, maybe two or three, and the idea of using team. Um, it, it's at, how what has your experience been like of using team or maybe not using team, and. Um, what would you say to churches that are moving towards more of a team model? Um, what are some of the thoughts about about that kind of a, an approach? Uh, I've never been involved in that, but you know, I'm, whenever I've been gone, we've just had one of the other staff pastors preach. Right. But working in kind of isolation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Once in a while, they might fit into whatever series I was doing, but not not usually. Uh, I never sensed from the church that they wanted anything other than that. Okay. They, they, they wanted me. Right. Okay. Now, if you have equally competent people 
on the team so that nobody's saying, oh, is he doing up today? It's I the B guy. Yeah, it's the, the B guy the up today. Plan B yeah. is up today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. As long as you can avoid that, then it's a, it's a good model. Uh, it, you know, people here. Uh, on the other hand, can you sustain a series through a book with some consistency of approach to the book right. when you got different guys? Now, you, the answer is yes, you can if the team works together collaboratively right. to help each other. Even though it's not my week to be up there, yeah. I was involved in the process of helping you for right. your week. That that works well. Yeah. How many students that come through are kind of on a team or part of a team? Or, or do you talk about that at all in your homiletics no, class? No, usually you have to be in a pretty good sized church That's to true. even make that happen. Yeah. And the students, most of the students, most of the students that come through at the master's level, they're not preaching pastors yet. Right. Uh, in Southern California, when you're young, if you're in a church, somebody else is older than you and, you know, do it. Now, if you were in Nebraska or Utah or someplace where it's a smaller church, you can graduate from the seminary be the preaching pastor. Right. Southern California, that doesn't happen that often. Uh, now, at a doctoral level, when I have them coming in, some of the guys in larger churches are part of preaching teams. Mm -hmm. And they have found that a profitable uh, a way to go. They, they like it. Yeah. Uh, but they have some frustrations. Okay, what are some of the frustrations that the people... The frustration is the other people on the team don't come at the scriptures with the same commitment to biblical accuracy that I do. Okay. Okay, there isn't a collaboration. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, we're in a series, but the guy that spoke last week didn't at all carry forward the thought of the book that we're studying. Hmm. So they have that frustration. Yeah. Yeah, What? so when students come through here and there's... You know, there's some churches that are much more topical, and certainly you've you've lived through the trends mm -hmm. in here in Southern California and around and in the nation um, about whether it's expository preaching or um, more topically. Um, in your homiletics class, are you more looking for people to present uh, um, expository messages as, as in terms of training, or are there times where you're giving occasion like uh, we want to hear an occasional message or um, or something that's a little we more actually topical. have in, in one of our courses we actually make an assignment you must preach a topical message okay. so we buy both both kinds uh, the danger in topical message well the when you give a topical message you have to carefully exegete or study two or three or four passages right. in order to make sure you don't take them out of context yeah. so in the early stages of your ministry topical is more difficult to do correctly because you don't know the context of those passages and so you've quadrupled your study time for that week. Later in your ministry when you've preached through a lot of books you can go back to a book and know you are not going to take that passage out of its context. So as long as you can avoid the danger of topical preaching of lifting out a phrase that has nothing to do with what the author is talking about I'm, I'm open to it. I, I did both in my ministry. I would say Probably 70% of the time I was preaching through a book, yeah. but you know, 20 to 30% of the time I might have been in a topical series or, or had a standalone topical message. Yeah. As you see students coming through uh, here at Talbot, um, and they show up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in your class, and um, you know, a lot of people that are looking. They show up with deer in the headlight looks. Oh. <laughs> Well, that's, maybe you change it from Monday. Pastor Monday classes for pastors are they're so beaten down after that Sunday. Deer in the headlights. So they show up. But no, they're deer in the headlights. Is they're scared. They're, <laughs> they're scared. 
<laughs> to be because preaching is the only course where everybody sees your work. Oh yeah. In the other courses, the only person who sees your work is the professor who's reading your paper mm. or the TA who's grading your exam. Mm. In preaching, your work is done in front of the whole class wow. and the whole class has a discussion about your preaching afterwards. Wow. That's one thing I, why it's scary. The other reason it's scary is preaching is what they know they are called to do when they leave here. Mm. Okay, so this is I need to know that I'm going to be a good preacher because my bread and butter depends on my ability to be a good preacher. Now, Sanukin, you're the one who's going to tell me whether I'm going to be a good preacher or not. Okay? I mean, maybe I'm not going, I mean, I took another course in something else, but nobody in my church will ever know whether I do good in that. Right. But they'll know whether I do good in oh, preaching. They, they, and they'll tell me. And they'll tell me. <laughs> so they come in with these two, everybody's going to evaluate me, and I'm going to learn here whether my calling from God has validity or not. So they come in with a, please tell me I'm going to make it, you yeah. know, kind of thing. So how do you balance that? Like, you want to be encouraging, but you also want to be, you're, you're the gatekeeper in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, you're going to let someone out of here with a degree from Talbot Theological, you know, Talbot School of Theology. And in a lot of ways, that degree is a blessing that, yeah, you've been trained here. So yeah. how do you balance, I want to encourage these pastors, and I also want to give them something to think about here. Yeah. Well, we're committed to a very thorough interaction with every sermon you preach. We will videotape you. We, I will talk about it after the class. After, after the class is over, I take your manuscript back. It's in, on my computer. You've sent it to me. I download it. I put on uh, I put on some kind of revise or edit process yeah. in my computer, and I type into your manuscript all kinds of red comments and suggestions and and help aids about here's what you did well, and if you give attention to this, it'll come through even more clearly. I even give you the words to do that. When I've done that for you on five or six sermons, you're pretty well able to go out and say, they trained me. They trained right. me. Now in the process. I've also learned over the years how to do that in what I think is a very kind, constructive way rather than a you blew it way, okay? Instead of saying, uh, this was terribly confusing, I'll say, you will be even clearer, if you will. I've just learned the right. positive phrases right. Right. so that it comes out sounding a little more encouraging rather than scolding. Yeah, it's funny, as a, in grading, a lot of times I was writing, you should do this, and now I, now I will talk about this paper would be go to the next level. There you go. And so if you're, oh, this sermon will be da, even da, da, da. more effective if right. it's know. not about you. And so that is an interesting because you are training pastors, but there is this distinction. You don't want people to kind of live and die their identity on their sermons. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, the idea of success as a pastor tied to the sermon do you ever have conversations with students about that? I mean, obviously, that's your class. And yeah. so their success in your class is tied to their sermons. Yes. And, 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 the, and the honest truth is their success in most, if they, the, if they are the preaching pastor of a church, their success is tied to their preaching. Right. Every survey that is ever done says when you ask people, why do you stay in this church or what, what do you look for in a church, good preaching is, is the number one on every list. When you candidate, they don't ask you to send them a copy of a missions program you develop. They ask you to send me, send us some videos of you preaching. Right, right. Okay? Because they don't ask you to talk about a discipleship program that you may have developed. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, not all of them are going to be in any discipleship program, but they're all going to be there on Sunday morning. Yeah. And that's where you 
you cut it or you don't. Yeah. And uh, we don't say that to them. Uh, I think I used to say that. I used to, in some courses, bring up some of the statistical surveys. I think they intuitively know that. Yeah. They intuitively know that. Yeah. I don't think... <laughs> but also, probably people who are getting into pastoral ministry, to some degree, they kind of aspire to stand in that pulpit and do well. Yeah. It, now, you do have students who say, I'm required to take a preaching course because that's the degree requirement. Yeah. I intend to be an associate in some other area of the ministry. Mm -hmm. And hey, God bless them. They're worth their weight in gold. Right. I mean, what I what you want is not somebody on the staff who wants your job. You know, you want somebody on the staff who says, Sanukian, I pity you. You have to stay in your study and do the exegesis. I get to talk with people, counseling them mm -hmm. and discipling them all day long. Or I get to hang out with the kids. I say, God bless you, stick around this church. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so people who don't aspire to be the preaching pastor of the church still need seminary training yeah. and they are equally valuable in a church uh, and so for them I say okay if you don't get a an A in the pastor in the preaching class I understand that it won't damage your self-image because you say I'm not headed there anyway right right, yeah. right get an A in the counseling class <laughs> there you go there you go now for you personally when you think about preaching and the preparation that goes into it there's always things that kind of bring life to us in that process and other things that kind of put us in the fetal position, like, oh my gosh, I have to do that. Is there anything, what, what are the things in the, in the preparation process that, that, more, that tend to give you life and what are the things that you're a little bit more like, ah, oh, yeah. that you might not gravitate towards? The, the fun part for me is the early study. Yeah. Uh, pulling those books off the shelf, looking at it, learning stuff that the God is saying that I never knew before. This is so fascinating, so interesting. Translating, yeah, yeah, you do yeah, original yeah. language yeah, work. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know? uh, and just get, getting all of that. And, yeah. and getting all of that, and usually it falls into place. And usually I can think of where it connects in our life. The part where I have to just gut it out, suck it up, is when I have to sit down and start manuscripting. Hmm. That's hard. I mean, I'll find a whole lot of things to do. I'll go out and cut the lawn. I'll cut my fingernails. I'll ask my wife wants me to wash the windows. You know, you just find anything to do. But the interesting thing is, once I sit myself in and start on that computer, all of a sudden the juices roll mm. and the hours fly by. Mm. Okay, mm. it's getting started. Yeah. Uh, what do you What do you think? What What do you think that is? Like, why do you think it's It's it, hard to sit down and get it going? Because it is such a labor. Mm. It is just flat out a labor. Yeah. Uh, but once you get into the labor, yeah. then it starts rolling, and it, it it's all right. It right. becomes fun. How do you know when you when you're thinking about? You've made all these observations in the text, and you've you've geeked out. I, do you use Bible software? Or? No. Y'all, you're just old school. I'm old school. Old I bought school. I bought the books before they put them into the software. Oh, look at that. That's just fantastic. <laughs> So you're, you've done that work and you've got all these observations. When do you know what the thing is that's going to hold this sermon together? Like at what point? Is it when you start the manuscript or are you already thinking ahead? Is it while you're doing the dishes something comes to you? Yeah, yeah. it's long before I start manuscripting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, before, when I start manuscripting, I know what holds it together and I know what process I will go through to show what holds it together. Okay. I know my structure, I know my points, I know my applications. It's all in my head or I've made notes on yeah. all of it. Where it starts coming together is often around the fourth or fifth commentary mm. where all of a sudden I'm hearing other voices and sometimes a consensus of the scholars. Mm. 
is emerging and that consensus is starting to crystallize right. in my head and I'm starting to see the dynamic in our culture and it usually comes at that somewhere in that point. Now I have to finesse the language of it, right. but it's it, it emerges in the study process. Yeah. There is something really meaningful about sitting down in a passage by yourself, making a bunch of observations and then going to commentaries and saying, oh yeah, I saw that, mm -hmm. I saw that too. I saw Because then there's this sense of like, of ownership. Mm -hmm. I saw what these commentaries saw and, and everybody's seeing the same thing and now now I know I'm going to stand in the pulpit and I'm going yeah. to say something that is part of this passage. Yeah. I'm not making this stuff up. Yeah. I'll say yeah. every once in a while, I'll say, hey, man, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> like this is there. It's yeah. really there in the in the passage. Yeah. So that's uh, that. And, and those those moments uh, of that um, are really good. So what where do those ideas of what holds it together, whether it's an illustration or um, or something, where do those tend to come from? Okay, I don't think in terms of an illustration holding something together. Sure. The passage has its own internal integrity, which is held together by the flow of thought of the author. Right. The illustration can only come in, or the, ex the application can only come in to extend that into my world. Yeah. But what holds it together is the, the words of the text and uh, the, the, the theological central point. Uh, just for an example, okay, you've got the Gibeonite story in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites decide we are not going to force, join forces against Israel. Their, Israel is, that would be suicidal, okay? We are going to pretend that we have come from outside the country because then Israel will make a treaty with us. Inside the country, God has said no treaties, they must be removed. Mm -hmm. So we will dress ourselves and get moldy bread and we're going to come like, you know, and very artfully they use language you know, our elders told us this in, in the land of Canaan, you don't call them elders, you call them kings, mm. okay? We've heard about what your God has done and they refer to events way back in the Exodus instead of recent events in the land. In other words, everything, it's really choreographed. To, there's an Oscar that they should get. So they come to Joshua and they say, we're outside the land, make a treaty with us. Joshua does not inquire of the Lord to see whether this is true or not. And we have to explain about the Urim and the Thummim that he was supposed to get answers through the high priest. But he fails to inquire of the Lord and Israel makes a treaty. And all of a sudden, four days later, they discover these people live just a few miles away. And Israel is angry with the leaders because their leaders, without it, because they did not inquire of the Lord, now have allowed a pagan influence that can contaminate Israel's worship to remain in the land. Israel will be infected by this pagan influence and it's their leader's fault. The leaders though, when they discover this, say, we cannot execute, we cannot go against them. We gave them an oath in the name of Yahweh our God. Right. We have to be true to our oath. But here's what we will do. We will require them to be, and the text three times has what I'm gonna say now. We will require them to be woodcutters, and water carriers. The first time it's mentioned is they will do that for the nation. The second time Joshua mentions it, he says, you will do it for the house of, your, of, God, of our Lord wherever he chooses to put that temple. Mm -hmm. The third time he says, you will be woodcutters and water carriers for the altar of our God. Now, anytime you have a narrative passage 
repeating something three times, each time narrowing it down from the nation to the temple mm -hmm. to the altar and the laver, which was the place of sacrifice mm -hmm. and cleansing. The genius of the narrative writer is, hey, I'm giving you some clues as to where yeah. this thing is heading. So what are the big strokes? The big strokes are Israel made a decision without asking God whether it was a wise decision. They gave their word on it. Where do I make decisions without asking mm. God and I give my word? Well, right away, marriage is one of them. Sure. Eh? Maybe I didn't pray about it and I married this woman and I said, yes, I vow, okay. And they later discover it was a mistake. Maybe I went to this church and I said, yes, I'll be your, on your staff for five years. And after two years, I figured, no, that's wrong. I, I need to be out of here. Okay. Mm. I mean, I go through the contemporary ways. Somebody makes a business deal to sell generators for $300. A, a hurricane hits the state next door and he discovers his, his generators can be now sold for $900 over there. But he gave his word. Okay. Right. It was, he shouldn't have committed it when there were storm warnings of another. You know. right. Okay. So I've got contemporary connections. I, I, I made a bad decision, but I gave my word. If I keep my word, which is what Israel does, God has a way of redeeming the situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, The redemption is that the Gibeonites were now required every day to bring wood for the sacrifices mm -hmm. and water for the cleansing. Mm -hmm. Every day they had to bring it. Every day the Gibeonites were coming to the very center of Israel's worship and learning, learning about, about Israel's it. God. Mm -hmm. Okay, The pagans were not contaminating Israel. Israel right. was contaminating the pagans. Nice. Nice. <laughs> they were drawing them into the world. Now, yeah. there's, the, there you, you see God is revealing an eternal truth. Mm -hmm. If you will keep your word, even though you may have made a mistaken decision, mm -hmm. you can trust me to redeem the situation mm -hmm. and bring good out of it. There's the timeless truth that comes through. Yeah an event. Yeah, and using the passage then to, to structure that yeah. and to get at that. Yeah. And you start to see that and then you sit down and you start to manuscript that And I out. start thinking through where does it show up in our lives? Yeah. What kind of commitments have we made? What would it sound like to keep our word? Yeah. Uh, how might God redeem it? Yeah. You, I, I, you know, take a marriage. I mean, I, 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 I found out after four years of marriage, I, married the, I, I shouldn't right. have married this woman. Right. Okay, keep your word. Right. Now, how will God redeem that? I have to go back into that story and with equal concrete specificity visualize for you how God will redeem that. Mm -hmm. It might involve your kids. It might involve some something that's coming into the marriage in 20 years. Yeah. I have to give them hope. Hope is when they see in their mind, yeah, I could see that this could be a way that God would redeem this. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor. I will hang in there. Right, yeah. right, right. Do you, um, now that's, that's from Joshua. Are you do you do you feel more comfortable Old Testament, New Testament, or you're like, look, I love the Bible. I'm I love the Bible. I love the Bible. I'll I'm take, over there. I'll mean, take whatever it gives. I, I, I'm in the Psalms. I do the same thing right. in the Psalms. Right. You know, uh, David is David has got an external enemy that is going to destroy yeah. everything that God has yeah. planned for him. Okay, who's my external enemies that right. in your world? Right. Okay, uh, what what is David's prayer? Okay, why does he have confidence that God will answer yeah. his prayer? Why can you have that same confidence? The answer is because God has always been good to you in the past yeah. and God has given you a promise. He will be faithful to you in the future there. And do you tend to find places of application in every point like that, like every every point looking for those two horizons? No, there are two kinds of structures. There's one structure where you go through a movement of the text 
And that point, you can bring it up. So I can go through Joshua and say, right. we've made decisions and it was the wrong decision, okay? And I give the contemporary right. connection. Second movement, we need to keep our word. I'll come back and keep our word. Right. In other words, as the, as the text progresses, the contemporary connection can progress. That's one kind of structure. Let's call it an interspersed, where I interspersed as I go through right. the text. The other kind of structure is I take the entirety of the text the whole thing. and I wait until I get to the end and I have one singular truth. Yeah. And it's not the individual hunks that have connection, it's only the singular right. truth. And so when I get to the end, then I apply it. Then you're, then yeah. you're bringing those two. And we, we talk about these yeah. two, two different kinds of structures. Yeah. There are some other ones, but those, yeah. are, those are the No, that's good. Ones. Sometimes, if, especially if the wheels aren't turning very well and, and you're a little bit at writer's block, sometimes it's helpful just to be like, okay, I, I've got a structure. I know where does this passage fit into those structures yeah. and, and, find, and, yeah. and, and get going on you, that. You say, what, among the structures that are available to me, which one best suits right. this passage? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, la last question, um, and uh, thanks for, for making time for this, but... When you have a classroom of students, and just as you've seen over the years, what sort of um, what sort of misconceptions perhaps do students have as they're coming in? What what are what are students prepared for, and what are they not prepared for? What do you feel like you're filling in? What gaps are you filling in the most yeah. in these classes? They all bring in what they've heard, and where they've grown up in their churches. Yeah. Okay, depending on their culture, they might have had a certain kind. Um, so they, they come in with a, for instance, they may come in saying, if I make a point, I've got to show you four other verses, four other passages in the Bible which make the same point. Right. Because that's what their pastor always did. You know, God wants you to love other people, see it in Romans, let me take you to John, let me right. take you to Timothy, let me show you in the Leviticus. Mm -hmm. And my point to them is, hey, all you need is one passage to establish the concept. I don't need you to chew up 15 minutes going to five other passages. I need you to, to, to take 15 minutes to tell me what does it look like in my life. Right. So that's a big one. Nice. Okay. They but they come in with that. I got to give you a whole bunch of references right. for any right. point. Shock and awe. I've got to yeah. give shock and awe. No, 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 yeah. no, no. Yeah. yeah. Be yeah. clear. Yeah. One one point. One passage establishes the point uh, for it. So they, they do that. Um, I'd have to think about some others. Sometimes, uh, sometimes they have come in from a culture where the pastor just kind of went phrase by phrase by phrase by phrase by phrase and there was no sense of larger concepts and there wasn't any sense of movement it was just a, a bunch of miscellaneous observations about the text right. and maybe even miscellaneous applications about those observations none of which were connected to anything else that, that was happening right. in that day so we, we just have to work against how what they've come in yeah. uh, with uh, most of them, they come in with a sense of expectation. They, they came here to learn. Right. Um, they kind of sense that I've been doing this long enough that maybe I can help them. So yeah. I don't sense them struggling against me. I sense them saying, I sure hope I can do what you're trying to tell me to yeah. do. <laughs> now, I said this, this is really the last question. Do you, <laughs> do you have that same spot in your ribs where like Nell's Nell's elbow hits you in the middle of a, you're listening to someone else's sermon and you're kind of like, oh, or do you ever, do you ever kind of groan a little bit when you're listening to other people's sermons? Or? It has to be really bad for me to do that. All right. You're yeah. good. You're a good man. You're a good man. <laughs> I, I know how hard it is to prepare a good message yeah. and I just have a lot of compassion and slack. Yeah. And if I sense that this guy has worked hard to prepare 
then chances are he's going to do satisfactory. Good. He might not do it perfectly, but yeah. that's all right. It's when I feel like, you know, you didn't even seriously prepare for this, mm -hmm. or you're not even trying to get what the text is saying. Then I get frustrated yeah. and irritated. Yeah. But in the circles that I move in, I don't ever, hardly ever. Make sure have. you're at the right church. Well, I mean, I, I'm in a lot of different churches, and it, they're usually good men. That's good. good men. That's, good. That's a good word. That's a good word. Well, thank you so much, Don, for making time. It's great to see you in your office and to see you here and what you're doing at Talbot School of Theology. It's a fantastic place. And if you're out there and you're looking for a good seminary, Talbot is a fantastic place to come get training. And you'll have conversations like this every day. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure, Craig. My pleasure. If you would like links to some of the things that we mentioned on this episode, they are available in the show notes. Things like Talbot School of Theology, where Don works, or Dallas Theological Seminary, where he received some of his training. Uh, they are available. There's links in the show notes. Also, Don has written a book on biblical preaching called An Invitation to Biblical Preaching, and there is a link to the Amazon page where you can take a look at that. Uh, he also mentioned a, a book by Daniel Overdorf, One Year to Better Preaching. So take a look at that and see if any of those might be helpful to you. Um, you can also see um, there's a link to Don's expository preaching lectures. There's about 14 of them on YouTube. And so if you are looking to kind of sharpen your craft, uh, take a look at that. Don is definitely... Um, looking at kind of the homiletic side, what you're doing, oral clarity, what you're doing when you're standing in front of people. And if that's something you feel like needs a little polishing up, Don is your guy. I mean, he is a longtime professor. The amount of people who've been trained by him at Talbot, so many. So uh, take a look at that. Now, if you're enjoying what we're doing here on The Teaching Pastor, there's a couple things that you can do for us. One, go to iTunes and leave a review. Um, click on the stars, five stars. Yeah, it's great. Five stars. Uh, leave a review. Uh, you can also subscribe. Maybe the best thing that you can do for us uh, is to share the podcast with somebody you think might benefit from it or be entertained by it or just someone. Maybe we interviewed someone that you uh, they might be interested in learning a little bit more about. But share the podcast. That is probably the best thing that you can do. But until then, we will see you on the next episode of The Teaching Pastor. Say well